And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some of the men, or they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they couldn't eat it. He said, then bring flour. (laughs) Really? Bring flour. Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Father, thank you for your word. We come to a text like this, and it's a text that probably would often just quickly blow by and think, oh, that's something. That's kind of strange. That's kind of odd. And we kind of move on to other things. Would you settle us here for a little while, Father? Um, This is where you have us today for some reason. Uh, Thank you. Would you help us to learn from your word? Would you help us to allow your word to shape our thinking, to shock us into a different way of thinking, to remind us of ways and maybe which our faith has gone a little bit off keel as we consider this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you come to a certain passage like this, it it can be with a certain sense of laissez-faire. It's an interesting story, but Concern over a pot of stew? Come on, this is a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? This is really quite trivial, isn't it? A little bit overdramatic to be thinking about a pot of stew that somebody couldn't eat and so God makes this pot of stew better. Really, in the big picture of life, aren't there things that are more important than a story about a pot of stew? Well, let's think about it just for a couple moments. For us, it might seem like a trivial issue. For these men in this In this circumstance, it was anything but trivial. For one who has lost their wallet in the middle of nowhere with their whole life in their wallet, finding their wallet is a pretty important issue. For the rest of it, it might might seem trivial. Even the fact that we pray and say, God, would you help me find my wallet? And we find it a little bit later. Someone look at that and say, well, it's just coincidence. It's just a trivial issue. No big deal. For somebody who, who walking is extremely difficult, who has to go down to the hospital for an MRI or a CT scan. And as they're driving, they pray, Lord, would you help me find a parking spot near the front door? We might say, well, how trivial is that? Really, that's just such a small issue in the big scheme of life. But to that particular person with that particular need, that is a huge issue for them. It's not trivial in God's eyes. So we come back to a situation like this with this stew in this particular story in the Bible. And most of us here have little, if any, comprehension of the magnitude of the issue or the need that is facing this group of men at this time. I was reading one commentator, and he started out by uh, simply saying this. It's a little bit of a long quote, but bear with me. It's interesting, he says, how many stories about Elisha and Elijah have to do with food? Now, if you were to read this passage and the one immediately following, you'd find the verb to eat at least seven times. So he carries on. He says, It's difficult for modern Western readers to understand what life in an agrarian society at basically subsistent levels meant for the average individual in ancient Israel. Starvation and hard times were never far away. Disruption of the annual rainy season, molds and funguses from too much or too little rain, locust outbreaks, or raiders who confiscated the harvest 
for their own use or burned fields in order to force the population to surrender could rapidly reduce an already hard life to borderline existence. News photos of famine-ravaged countries in our own day dramatically show how precarious life can be in agrarian societies. In modern Western countries, food is a far smaller part of the household budget than it has ever been. The time invested in gathering it is ordinarily limited to how long one spends in the supermarket or the convenience store and perhaps a small family garden. Life was very different in ancient Israel. In subsistence or marginal economies, providing daily bread may represent the largest expenditure one makes and may also consume almost every waking moment. In other words, this pot of stew and its spoiling had serious implications for this group of men. So let's kind of slow our minds down a little bit with that. and Let's backtrack and let's go back through the story and see the kinds of things that we might learn about God as we work our way through this. First, uh, just out of nowhere, he simply says there was a famine in the land. That's a helpful note about what's going on. Elijah, it seems, has probably left the, uh, the home of the Shumanite woman, which uh, Pastor Andrew took us through the story. I don't know how long it's been, but he's made his way back to Gilgal, and he finds himself among the sons of the prophets. Or, or rather, he finds them sitting at his feet. That's a classical way of saying they were learning from him. He was instructing them. So maybe he got home the afternoon the day before. Uh, they got up in the morning and now it was time for class. And they're all gathered around the prophet and they're, they're sitting there and they're, they're talking about life. They're talking about faith. Maybe they're talking about the covenant that God had made with Israel and all the things that's going on. I suspect that possibly part of the conversation might have been stimulated by Gehazi, the prophet's servant, who came back with the story about how the Shumanite woman couldn't conceive uh, Elisha prayed and she conceived and then how the baby died some years later and then how they just came back and this baby had been raised from the dead in a miraculous way and they were all talking about this. This is amazing. Have you heard that? I can't believe it. And they talked about that story probably a little bit. Maybe they were talking about the famine and the fact that somehow Elisha knew that the famine was going to happen. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 8 and I believe it's the same famine, there it says, God told Elisha that there would be a famine in the land. And so they might have said, well, Elisha, how does God speak to you? Tell me, did you hear his voice? Or, you know, is it something, is a tummy feel that you feel inside? How do you hear his voice? And so maybe they had this wonderful conversation about listening to God and um, hearing from God in their particular circumstances. Maybe it was just about prophet kind of stuff. I don't know what prophet kind of stuff is, but Bible school. Um, maybe they were talking about finding a wife. Isn't that why you go to Bible school? I don't know. Um, nonetheless, it must have come lunchtime. And uh, so Elisha, as a good uh, Christian man in a setting, would say, well, they don't just have spiritual needs, they have physical needs. And so, so I believe it's Gehesa. He says, Gehesa, get a pot of stew going. And so it's a communal effort. Um, probably one guy gets all the wood and they start to fire. Somebody goes and grabs a big pot and fills it with water and, and they just all fan out to find stuff to fill up this pot of stew. It says, though, that there was a famine in the land. We'll come back to the stew in a moment. The, the fact that there was a famine land doesn't mean that there was absolutely nothing to eat any more than saying there was a drought in the land, meaning there's nothing to drink at all. It just means food is scarce. It means it's harder to come by. It means it's more valuable. And so there was this famine in the land. 
What we don't know is why there's a famine in the land. Any more than when we first read the story about the 42 boys who were mauled by a bear, we thought, well, why did the bears come out? And as we pursue it a little bit, though, we realized that the bears were covenant bears. Remember in Deuteronomy, it says that if you persist in your rebellion and your sin and your disobedience, the Lord will send wild animals to devour your children. In the same way, I believe this is a covenant famine. That God had said to them very clearly that we're entering into relationship. If you obey me and serve me and worship me, all these blessings will be your way. But if you disobey me and are persistent in it, I will send this and this and this after you to call you back to myself. And one of the things is plague or famine or drought. And remember, we're in northern Israel here. They have been incredibly disobedient, worshiping idols, ignoring God, sacrificing in the wrong ways at the wrong times with the wrong people. They had turned away from God. They had persisted in their sin. And so God, true to His Word, and God is always true to His Word, sends a famine in the land. I think one of the interesting things, though, if you read it, is is that the famine in the land isn't just affecting those who are disobedient to God. The sons of the prophet are experiencing the effects of the famine as well. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God's people were somehow exempt from God's ways in the world? Wouldn't it be wonderful somehow if God would draw a line of demarcation between the church and the world when God is sending a plague upon the world and and the people of God are are set aside and they don't experience the pain or the suffering? Well, no, the the sons of the prophets were not exempt from the impact of the famine. They, too, were going hungry. They, too, were going without food. Some of you might recall a a number of months ago, we were in the life of Abraham. And soon after Abraham came into the promised land that God had said, I will give you, the exact same phrase is used, there was a famine in the land. When you think about that famine, it was probably much more to just natural realities. There are just famines in the land. Now, God knows about those famines, and God knows they're coming. God knows how to use them. But the famine in the land during Abraham's time wasn't a direct result of God disciplining anybody in that certain situation. It was the fact that they just lived in a fallen world. Just as the famine that Israel and his family experienced that eventually led them to Egypt, where God provided for them through Joseph, was simply a means that God used to direct his people. So in the context of Abraham's life, the famine was a natural desire and a disaster. And we saw with Abraham, though, his response wasn't one of faith. He should have stayed in the land of promise. But no, he doubted God's ability to provide for him. And he left the land and went down to Egypt, which was a huge mistake. But as I did with Abraham 12, or Genesis 12.10, I want to do here with this phrase, there was a famine in the land whether it was God's doing because of punishment or natural consequences, and replace one word. There was a virus in the land. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow the people of God were exempt from all the issues that are swirling around because of this virus? Wouldn't it be wonderful if as a church we were exempt from all the issues that were being created and the challenges and the, 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 the points for division that there are that, that are coming because of this, this virus and, 
and that we weren't affected by it and we just went on our jolly merry way and, and, and we didn't have to uh, wrestle with vaccinations, we didn't have to wrestle with masks and we didn't have to wrestle with those kind of issues, we didn't have to fear getting the virus, we didn't have to fear passing the virus on, we were just exempt. But we're not loved ones, are we? And so we have to learn how to walk through this virus. We have to learn how to trust God as we walk through this virus. We have to learn how to live in community with one another as we walk through the consequences and the implications of this virus. Please hear me very carefully. I am not saying that this virus is God's judgment on the world or it's just a natural... Con I don't know. I don't have that kind of insight or wisdom. But this much I do know is God has seen fit to allow or send this virus upon our land and upon our world at this time. And I also know that God has seen fit not to make a distinction between the people of God and the people of Satan, those that do not walk with him. We are in the world. The Bible says we will suffer. The Bible says we will face trials. The Bible says that God will leave us in the world. The Bible tells us what? That we should find joy in our circumstances. That we should find joy in our trials. And so, loved ones, as we walk through this together, we walk with humility. We walk with submission to God. We search the Scriptures and we say, God, how should I live? Not how do I want to live or what would be most convenient for me, but God, how do I find my way and how do we find our way through this land at this time when there is a virus in the land. Because God has not seen fit to exempt us from the impact of it in our lives. This is the present situation of God's people. Secondly, give us this day our daily bread. Literally, this was this need of this little band of prophets. Daily bread. You see, in normal times, we, what, 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 what might we have expected them to do? Oh, this is, this is gross. Let's start a new pot of soup. Start from scratch again. But not in the time of famine. It's not a trivial issue. But you don't just throw out a pot of soup because you don't like the way it tastes, or in this case, because there's death in the stew. Here, their daily bread proved to be inedible. This was not a trivial matter, but it was a significant need for them. It was the difference between going to bed hungry that night and waking up in the morning with your stomach growling or going to bed with a little bit of something in your stomach and having a good sleep. And we ask ourselves, what well, does God, God care about such things? See, rarely is that a concern for us. We have our freezers full. We have our pantries stocked to overflowing. We have supplies stored up in bins in our crawl spaces and in our basements for earthquakes or, or, or some kind of uh, eventual uh, thing that might happen. And that's why it's so easy for us to read this particular text and just blow through it really quickly. No big deal. It's just a pot of stew. See, one of the challenges for you and I 
is in times of plenty to never lose sight of where our plenty comes from. Before you eat, do you give thanks to God for His provision? Is there meaning to it? I find myself often just frustrated with myself because we have the food before us and Father in heaven, thank you for this food in Jesus' name, amen. Start eating. There's no thought to it. There's no sort of um, deep sense of thankfulness that God has actually given me that food that we're about to eat. It, it's just, it's become a habit. I've trivialized it in my own thinking, in my own speaking. When you eat and, are you, and you're full, do you praise the Lord and say, God, thank you, as you fall asleep without your tummy rumbling? Thank you, God, for my daily bread today. We should listen very carefully to the words of Moses to the people of Israel as they were coming into a land of plenty. He says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, Thus, when you're eaten and are full and have built good houses to live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplying, all that you have is multiplied. So when your bank accounts are overflowing, when you've got a wonderful house with a roof on it, when you've got a couple cars in the garage, when you've got your RSPs stacked to the limit, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of Savory, who led you through the great and terrifying famines with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you, to the, brought you water out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness and manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good. Beware lest you say in your heart. We've talked off a lot about self-talk. Here's another example of it. It's not something you verbalize with somebody else. It's, it's like Nebuchadnezzar when he got up one day and he walked on the, 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 the top of his palace and he looked down and he said to himself. So he says here, Beware lest you say in your heart. And he gives us the words. My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Well, I've worked hard. You sit and survey it, and you think, oh, man, you know, like, I've had five jobs, and I've saved well, and I've got a great education, and I've made good choices, and just great investments, and... Oh, he says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. So again, why do we pray before we eat? Do you pray before you eat? How do you and how do I resolve this very real tension of abundance of food at our fingertips and yet Jesus instructing us to pray, give me this day my daily bread? How do you resolve that tension? Do you ever think about that tension? And what about God's concern over the little things in your life? A needed parking spot or a lost wallet. Loved ones, God does care about those things. And just as we have been seeing that nothing is too difficult for God, we could also then say nothing is too trivial for God. It might be trivial to everyone else that looks on you and 
here's what you're concerned about or here's the burden of your heart, but it's not trivial to God. Don't worry about anything, we're told, but in everything, anything and everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we see in here the minuteness of God's care for his people and their dependence on him even for their daily bread. Thirdly, God's defense against spiritual amnesia. Where does that come? Well, the flower. You think, flower? What's what's the point of the flower in this text? I think, but I'm not a doctor or a naturopath or anything, I, I don't know of any healing qualities in flour. In fact, I know all these diets that say you shouldn't eat flour. Um, But I don't know of any healing qualities in flour. But I do know that in an agrarian society, every day flour was important. Every day they would get flour, they would mill flour, they would grind flour, they would take that flour and they would knead it into bread or some kind of cakes for their daily food. In much the same way as, I don't know why Elisha took salt when the water supply of Jericho was poisoned and he took salt and he threw it in the spring. But salt was something, again, that the people would use daily. There probably wouldn't go a day go by that they wouldn't sprinkle salt on maybe some meat that they had harvested from the field to preserve it because they didn't have fridge or maybe they would use it for some other purpose. But we say, well, why salt and why a handful of flour? Because God doesn't always use these sorts of things in miracles that he does. Could it be that God wanted to provide a physical and a visual reminder for these men of his power and his mercy? You see, every time these men would have used flour, now they would have remembered. Remember when Elisha threw that into the stew? Every time the residents of Jericho would have used salt, they would oh, salt, that's, that's what God used to purify our water. Years ago, I was given a 14-foot 2x12 because I had been moaning and complaining about my yearly hated task of trimming my hedge, which is monstrous. And so I was given this 2x12, 14-foot long, to put between two ladders that I suspend. I don't suspend the ladders, actually. I suspend the 2 by. Uh, 12, and I climb up and I walk along it so I can trim the top of my hedge because it's 8 to 10 feet high, maybe higher. But every time I do it, every time I touch that 2 by 12, I remember the man who gave it to me. And I pray for him and I pray for his family. That's not a big thing. I just say, Lord, thank you for so-and-so. Thank you for their gift for me. I pray you'll be with them today and with their family and any challenges that they're taking. In other words, that That piece of lumber is, for me, a visual reminder of God's grace and mercy to me in having something to walk on to do my hedge with. Earlier this morning, we took of the Lord's table. Two elements, visual reminders. Do you ever think when you're eating a loaf of bread of the Lord's table? Do you ever think when you're having some grape juice or something associated with the vine and you think, oh, yeah, this this is a reminder of the Lord's blood that was shed for me. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says this, So why does God mix visible signs in with his mighty works? So that God's work may grip you and hold your memory captive. 
Not that God always uses visible signs, but our wise creator knows that sometimes the best way to our mind is through our imagination. And so he may use a picture instead of an argument. Can you picture attending a reunion um, with the sons of the prophet? Years later, he writes, There was a time, one of them says, when Uzziah chopped up those weird gourds into the stew, and he nearly killed us all. And then a pipe, another pipes up, and he, he doesn't quote Elisha's command to pour out the stew. No, he exclaims, and remember how Elisha grabbed that flour and heaved it into the pot? That was always a visual reminder to these men of God's mercy and God's grace. And furthermore, as with the salt, it's a reminder that one day God is going to remove all the curses on this land. There will be no more suffering, no more poisonous stew, no more useless water. But we will be in the new heaven and the new earth where everything will be perfect. And so God sometimes uses visible things, though, to prevent spiritual amnesia in our lives. Fourthly, the wonder of God's redemption. Elisha told his servant, probably Gehazi, to put on a large pot of stew for the sons of prophets. And as it turned out, lunch became a communal effort. They all fanned out to start doing their things. And one of these guys went out scavenging in the fields, and there's all kinds of reasons behind why he went out or who he is, and I don't think any of them really matter, other than this guy goes out and he's scavenging. He comes across this vine, this wild vine, and on it are growing all these fruit. Um, some say about the size of an orange. And he cut as many of them off as he could. He wrapped them up in his robe and he comes running back and he throws them into the stew. Most of us, or most of us, most of those who write about this and who have a knowledge of uh, uh, those times in that place uh, suggest the vine was a colosynth, something like a, a wild cucumber. It was known to have laxative qualities, but in large numbers to be fatal. And so... As we think through this, he says, well, was it as though this guy harvested, harvested these gourds alone, and then they, together, all the sons of prophets, as he came back, he came back, and they were all unaware of what these were. They just chopped them all up, and they threw them in the stew. Or was it that the rest of the prophets were unaware that this man had added these gourds to the stew? And so he just came back, and they were all doing those things, and he chopped them up, and he threw them in, into the stew. Or was it that this lone prophet was unaware what they were, he should have known better, but he was hungry, and he thought, well, they look good, and he just grabbed them, and he threw them into the stew. It's not really clear. But what is clear is that it was an accident. It was an innocent mistake. It wasn't an intentional thing that he did. This lone prophet acted with the best of intentions only to face the worst possible outcome. Who of us have not found ourselves in similar situations? A parent, as a parent, you make decisions. At the time, you think, oh, these are just amazing decisions. This is just the right thing to do. And it just blows up in your face. I've made a few of those, and the kids remind me of those. And thankfully, the Lord has redeemed that situation. Or you may be in a situation where you heard about a need, and and, and out of just your desire to help and to serve, you just went about to help that person. It just blew up in your face. And all of a sudden, it turned into an argument. Or they no longer want to talk to you. And they, How did that ever happen? You thought you were doing the right thing. It just turned out to be the worst thing that you ever could have done. I recall a number of years ago, 
when Kathy and I were first married, not been married that long, um, we had our second, our first son, he was about six months old. I was going to school full-time. I also had a part-time job. Uh, it was our first baby. Life was kind of crazy. Um, and uh, I came up with a plan. We lived in fourplexes, kind of like old military housing, and sort of all in a big circle. There was eight to ten of these uh, fourplexes that were around here. And uh, so I, I wanted to write Kathy a letter. Um, so I got the phone book, and I just picked a, uh, an address random and a name. I, some, of you, some of you might not know what a phone book is, but um, <laughs> I remember those. And so I just took a random name, and I put it on the corner so that Kathy wouldn't know that it was me who sent her the letter. And the note began something like this. I have been watching you lately. <laughs> just, just not a great start. And then, and noticing that your husband has been neglecting you. And then, I would like to give you a break. Would you like to go out for dinner with me? <laughs> really putting Kathy in an awkward position. Because <laughs> if she said yes, then I was in real trouble. But after posting the letter then, I was really looking forward to coming home that day. And Kathy opened the letter. Oh, Paul, I'm so glad you've been thinking about me. Let's go for dinner. But of course, when I got home, and Kathy had this letter, there was sort of fear. Paul, you should see this letter I got. It was the best of intentions with the worst possible outcome. <laughs> but thankfully, Kathy redeemed the situation, and we did get out for a dinner. But so it was like putting these gourds into this stew. It was the best possible intention. I want to add some content to this stew. Those look like good gourds. I'll put them in. And you know what happens after we do something like that, don't you? We just beat ourselves up. Oh, I shouldn't have done anything. I should have left well enough alone. I should have kept my mouth shut. I should have stayed at home. I shouldn't have got involved in this situation in any way. It just, why did I ever do that? But truth is, God knows all about that. This is the amazing thing about our God. He doesn't strike this guy down dead with a bolt of lightning. God, in his mercy and his grace, he turns the situation around and he brings incredible good out of what, could, what was a deadly, deadly situation. I've seen God do that with my children as I have done things with the best of intentions and they've all blown up. I've seen that with going about trying to help somebody and God has been able to turn it around and bring wonderful good out of it after a period of time. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Just serve. Just serve. With Moses, we pray, let the favor of our Lord, the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish for us the work of our hands. Lord, here is my thoughts. Here is my working. Here is everything I do with the best of intentions, Lord. Even if it blows up, Father, would you establish it? Would you bring glory from it? God, you can. Maybe you're in that situation. God, you can turn this around. You can bring good from it. You know what the intention of my heart was. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is concerned 
about the little daily issues of our life. Trust Him with your stuff. Father, we come to you today, and I'm thankful, Father, for the way that you work with us. You don't always pull us out of situations that everyone else experiences, but Lord, like the famine in the land of those hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there's a virus in the land today. We need your help to walk through it in a way that brings glory to your name, that honors you as your children. Father, we need to remind ourselves that our daily bread comes from you. That every meal we have, every, everything that we have in our freezers or our, our, our fridges or our pantries, it's there because you have provided excess for us. Father, I thank you for the visual reminders that you give us sometimes in our lives. Things that just remind us of your mercy and of your grace to us in ways that words never would. And Father, I thank you so much that, Lord, we often do things with the greatest of intentions, but they just blow up in our faces. But you can take those things, Father, and you can bring just incredible good for us and glory to your name through them. Father, help us to be reminded through this account today that you are involved in every aspect of our lives. You're not a distant God. You're not an unconnected God. You're, you're not a God who is, is not constantly at work guiding us, directing us, shepherding us, perfecting us. So, Father, help us to walk in this world and with you with incredible joy and a sense of confidence and comfort because we can trust you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.